You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia, and I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Rebecca Nellis, who is the Executive Director over at Cancer and Careers. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today as we discuss topics surrounding a cancer diagnosis within the workplace. For those who may not be familiar with who you are and what you do and your role over at Cancer and Careers, as well as what Cancer and Careers actually is, could you provide some information on that? Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, Cancer and Careers is a 16-year-old national nonprofit organization, and our sole focus is is the employment space after cancer. So from newly diagnosed to working through treatment to returning to work after time off to looking for a new job, everything in that space uh, that revolves around employment, which we know is such a big part of everyone's life, is, is what we're focused on at Cancer and Careers. Um, And I have been with the organization for almost 13 and a half years. Uh, And since we're 16 years old, that gives you some impression of how long that is. (laughs) 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 Which is a joy. I say that with with an enormous amount of pride. But it is funny when when those two thoughts follow right on top of each other. (laughs) Um, And prior to the executive director role, I was the chief mission officer. And prior to that, had many other titles over the years, as you do when you are building a small organization from an idea to national prominence. So, um, and it's a joy for me every day to think about these issues and help patient survivors and healthcare professionals navigate the employment space after cancer. Rebecca, you mentioned after cancer. Can you just clarify what that phrase actually means for our listeners, just so they get a better understanding of what exactly or when exactly they would find it useful to contact your organization? Definitely. When I say after cancer, I really meant after the diagnosis, not after okay. cancer is over, because that could that's a long span. And we actually work with a lot of people well into quote unquote survivorship who are still experiencing treatment related side effects, even if they're not still in active treatment. And certainly there's a whole community of people who are going to manage a cancer journey for the long term. So for us, what we really mean is after the point of diagnosis with a cancer diagnosis, we're there to talk about the employment pieces. I know that I probably did meet you probably six years ago at your annual conference that you have in New York City, which I thought was amazing. 
Um, it really brought a lot of information to the table. Uh, you always have great speakers there. And it really helped me be able to um, go back and tell our patients um, about their rights, about uh, what things to be thinking about when it comes to, to work. Because we get that question all the time here. People call us at our Information Resource Center and ask our information specialists about their rights. Um, you know, do I have to tell my employer I was just diagnosed? Um, a lot of our patients really do want confidentiality. And that was always one of my biggest questions was, you know, if, if you have a diagnosis, do you have to, by law, share it with your current employer? So I'm going to answer that, but before I do, I'm going to say I'm so excited that you've been to the national conference. It is, <laughs> it's it's kind of the crown in our year, and we do a lot of programming. But that's that's the biggest one day kind of moment. And if you were there six years ago, you were there at a very early one. We have grown a lot since then. This year we had 374 people in New York. Wow. Um, and we do a scholarship program. So every January we open applications and patients, survivors, and healthcare professionals can apply to attend from all over the country. So I just put that out there. If you have any listeners who that kind of full day experience might be valuable to, check out uh, cancerandcareers.org in January for the applications. Um, and we've brought more than 200 people over the last six years to New York to get to participate in this day because we really take that national piece seriously. We really want to make sure this information is getting out there. But it's huge now <laughs> compared, <It is>. to, <laughs> compared to the early years. Um, but to your, to, your, to your actual question, generally speaking, no one is ever required to share health information with their employer. Uh, and I say that in that way because, of course, there's nuance to everything and an individual might really want to speak to a to a legal professional about their circumstances. That might be an important step for them. But the broader conversation, and we share a lot of this information through webinars and on our website, is that employers don't have a right to your health information. They may have a right to some information about why you might be requesting something under the law like a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or why you might be requesting time off under the Family and Medical Leave Act, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're entitled to every detail about your health condition or to, and I mean, and when I say that, I mean literally like it doesn't mean they get to know prognosis and stage and treatment plan. It, it, it's just about providing enough information to access the thing that that patient is looking for at work, but there are lots of ways to think about what to share and how much to share. And those early questions are really important for those patients who have the time and the opportunity to consider how they feel about privacy and what they do and don't want to communicate. Um, and that's something that we are always trying to get to patients faster about so that they can control more of their story and make the decisions that work the best for them, if at all possible. Look, there are some circumstances where it's more complicated and some where it's less, but to know what to ask yourself so that you know how you're, you want to go into the workplace. On cancerandcareers.org, you guys have explaining what the issue is regarding work and diagnosis. And one of the facts that demonstrate, you know, uh, one of the ways that cancer and work intersect was the sad about 44% of people newly diagnosed in 2014 were of working age. What other research um, 
this cancer and careers have that further explains kind of how the two intersect and why there is a need for, you know, for cancer and careers? It's such a great question. So first, I'm going to give you my spiel about that stat, which is that I believe it's very conservative because okay. we don't know what working age means in this okay. country anymore. <laughs> so, right? so we use it because we need an anchor to begin the conversation. And we really think it's important to bring in research to create and contextualize the importance of the employment piece in this conversation. But there isn't a lot of data yet on this topic. There's more now than there was, but it's still a, it's a growing area of interest for academics. It's a growing area of interest in public survey research. And so, we use that stat because even if it was accurate, 44% of newly diagnosed people each year is a lot of people. That's a lot of people who would be of working age who might be facing this work issue. And then when I point out that we don't know what working age means anymore, so it's probably conservative, we're really talking about a significant number of people who are going to face questions about what to do about work. Um, and so it's very important to us to contextualize it and also contribute to it. So one of the things that Cancer and Careers does every year is a survey with Harris Poll. So we bring them in because we really want it to be valid and every survey has its downsides. You can poke them apart. I have a master's in public policy, so I have a lot of fun saying what's wrong <laughs> with our data and everybody else's because um, we spent a lot of time doing that in grad school. Um, but it certainly helps to create a baseline and, and capture some information, um, even if it's not the perfect group of people that you might want to have the, the, you know, you can't pick your demographics perfectly when you're surveying people, but at least you, we can get some solid information. Um, and so every year we do a poll with Harris and the last couple of years we've done fairly large ones for us to really just get a sense of the attitude and the feelings and the experience of people who've been diagnosed with cancer and faced the work piece. So obviously that employment piece is, runs through everything we do. Um, and what we see are survivors telling us that work is part of how they cope. It's, it's part of what makes this process normal in some way. Um, and so it's that kind of research that helps to underscore what we hear every day out in the community, which is that work is absolutely a paycheck. It's absolutely for many people access to health care, and that's critical. But that's, those aren't the only things that work is. And so to make sure that we don't forget that work is part of what makes the whole person and can be a community, it can be a source of support, it can be a source of identity, it's how you contribute to the world, it's what you offer on a day-to-day -day basis, it allows you to not be, if that's important to you, a professional patient, but rather being a patient is part of who you are, but there's your family and there's your work and all of those things. And for us, it's really important to not forget the identity piece for people around work and to understand what why someone wants to work. So for some people, it's all about the paycheck. So if we can find resources for them that allow them to take time off because they can bring dollars in in some other way, that might be the thing for them. For other people, it's about that identity, that contribution, that purpose. And so knowing why someone is focused on working allows us to navigate them better through their cancer experience. That's true, and I'm glad that you said it that way because everybody has their own way that they look at their profession. I often describe it 
um, for people uh, in this way. A person's work, how they feel about their work and their workplace, which we should not forget in the conversation here, um, mm -hmm. are as unique as a person's treatment protocol and their response to that treatment protocol. And so if you think about it that way and you stop looking at it as you're going to have this experience because other people like you have had this experience and start thinking about what someone needs to unpack about their actual workplace, how they personally feel about what they do and what is realistic and reasonable, which is why talking to their healthcare team is important also, um, is the only way for someone to find their path forward. There isn't a single answer around work, just like someone might be on the exact same protocol as someone else and not respond in the exact same way. That's sure. a great comparison. It is. And I think almost all of the patients that we speak to, all of them say, you know, with this diagnosis, now it's forcing me into my quote unquote new normal, but I really want to maintain the life that I had before. Absolutely. And we shouldn't make assumptions for people about what they do and don't want to do, which happens a lot on the employment topic. Employers assume their employee won't be as committed or doesn't want to work or that because they know someone else who had cancer in some other way that it's going to be exactly the same for the employee who's now talking about it. Healthcare professionals can at times make assumptions. I assume if you don't have to work, you don't want to work, rather than why do you want to work as the question. So I think one of the challenges for people is very much facing these misconceptions and these assumptions. And what we're trying to do in part is empower the patients to ask themselves what's important for them and to find ways to communicate that to all the players that they need to, to try to create the best the best path. It doesn't mean they're gonna, it's gonna go exactly as they want it to, of course, but what would they, what would their ideal outcome look like when it came to work? And, and how can we think about supporting them figuring that out? And it's important for people to really communicate with their treatment team. A lot of our patients don't really um, talk about work um, as their identity or work, how it makes them feel. They talk to their, um, treatment team maybe about work because they have to maintain work to pay for their treatment because of insurance. Um, Correct. We talk a lot to both the patient survivor population as well as to healthcare professionals. And specifically, we work a lot with social workers and nurses, which I'm sure makes sense to you. Um, and when we're having conversations with both of those groups, we're often talking to them about similar things, but just slightly differently. But in, in every one of those conversations, we are encouraging greater communication between those two groups. Because patients don't know what they don't know, and healthcare professionals have the ability to um, help guide someone through things because they see these things more frequently. But not all healthcare professionals have ever thought about work in the context of the rest of the story in the same way. So what should they even be asking to understand what their patients are thinking about when it comes to work? We have a, a checklist for healthcare professionals that they can use to sort of get at some of these questions with their patients in the hopes of being able to help navigate their patient to good information and ways to think about work that will be successful for them. Because we all know that so much of a cancer experience is out of that person's control.
but there are places where there are opportunities for control, where what you desire should at least be communicated with your healthcare team and talked about and figured out what's possible so that you can try to make that happen at work. But if the patient hasn't talked to their healthcare team about work, they don't know what side effects might be more specifically impacted in their job. And they can't just tell their healthcare team that they want to work, they have to explain what their job is. It's not enough to say, I want to go to work. Well, what if you lift 50 pound boxes all day long and that's not going to be realistic? Or what if you actually walk what turns out to be 10 miles a day because you have a job that has you on your feet? There are so many nuances to what a job is that your healthcare team isn't going to know the details. Just because you give out a title doesn't mean it, it mm -hmm. captures what the work is. So it's really important to get way deeper than I think people think they need to talk about work in order to really come up with some good and useful ideas and advice and thinking around what someone can and can't really do while they're going through treatment or even after treatment is over. So you, you mentioned that checklist. That checklist, is it available? as a printout on your website or is it something that they would get when speaking to someone at Cancer and Careers? How does that, how is that given to them or how are your resources delivered to, to someone who may, who may contact your organization? So that's a great question. Specifically, that checklist lives on our healthcare professional section of the Cancer and Careers website and it can be downloaded. Of course, anyone can use it and I am always encouraging patients to take with them something that's gonna work for them to help make whatever conversation easier. Um, I, I feel like I should take a step back and say every program we offer to patients, survivors, and healthcare professionals is offered free of charge because we are. what's most important to us is that there's no barriers to accessing this information so that a person can try to make their work goals possible or return to work after this process is over, depending upon what it looks like for them. Um, so anyone can order publications either individually or in bulk and we'll ship them anywhere in the country free of charge. Um, we also have a series of webinars uh, that can be accessed both in real time, which is great because you actually get to hear the presenters and ask questions during Q&A, but we also archive them on the site. So if you're someone who can't make the webinar, you aren't gonna lose out on the content if that's important to you. Um, and then we're in a lot of communities all year long. Last year, we were in 23 states. We're not a very big organization. So the fact that we made it to about half the country is pretty good. Um, so really, we send people to our website to start because it's kind of the hub um, of information and there are lots of pathways through it. We have a free resume review service on the site that can be done entirely virtually. But we also have three social workers on staff and you can call the office and talk about what's happening to you currently related to your work issues and get directed towards specific CAC programs or other organizations that might be more appropriate. So it's really for us about creating every kind of access point we can think of so that however somebody's most comfortable getting at information and connecting with us, we have some opportunity for them to do that. We totally agree and we, we um, are on the same page. Leukemia Lymphoma Society, we have information specialists um, that provide information and resources to patients and caregivers and healthcare professionals. And when they do ask specific questions about uh, their career path, of course, we do um, send them right over to you. We love that. 
<laughs> and we've been partnering for a really, really long time. I'm trying not to go too too far back in the recesses of my mind to point out things that I have done in partnership with you all. Um, this is a seasoned relationship. It, it, but that's what's so special. I feel like you know, one of the reasons that this work is so amazing for me, besides that I care very deeply about this issue, which is a different conversation, is that we're we're really in a position where we can have these wonderful, deep, long partnerships and really provide an additional set of content area for you to feel secure in the credibility and the expertise and the value of, but we partner on community events across the country. I mean, we, we've partnered in so many ways and, and it's really a special thing. And I, and I feel grateful regularly for those long partnerships. I think that they really make a much more robust experience for the patients we're all trying to serve. Absolutely. Earlier, you mentioned the importance of communication and how, you know, we shouldn't assume that, um, someone may not want to work as well as uh, uh, an employee doesn't have to necessarily necessarily share all the details of their diagnosis with their employer. Do you have ways that they can then have that conversation with their boss and their colleagues? Definitely. So we have, the first thing that pops immediately to mind is we have a manager's toolkit on our website that can be downloaded and it is designed for the person who's been diagnosed to take with them when they have the conversation with their manager as a conversation starter and a place for them all to kind of begin to get on the same page. It's not exhaustive. It's not every detail that a manager is going to need forever, but it's the beginning of a conversation for them. And we actually created it out of content that we'd created for employers because patients started to ask us for something that could go with them. So they'd heard information from us, they'd come to a presentation, they had called the office and it was all really helpful, but what could they take with that showed that what they were suggesting and what they were indicating was legitimate, was credible, came from some place that they could point to for their employer and say, I did some a little bit of research in advance so that I would know what to talk to you about. Um, and so that kit is, you know, not an epic publication. It's a handful of pages so that it just kicks off the conversation. The other thing that we've done from the manager's perspective is partnered on a project um, called Workplace Transitions for People Touched by Cancer. And the web address is workplacetransitions.org. And that website is a partnership. And from that partnership and using Cancer and Careers content that we had created for managers, it's basically an e-toolkit for a manager. So like I have an employee who's come to me and been diagnosed and I don't know what to do here's some beginning information about what to do and what to think about in a pretty user-friendly way and written to that manager person. Because one of the things that's also true, we talked about it before, you know, patients don't know what they don't know. Most supervisors were never trained to be supervisors. So you, you grow in a role and one day you have direct reports and no one ever sits you down and says to manage a person isn't just to manage workflow, it's also to manage a person. And things happen to people in their lives. And so you're, so you're just sort of sitting opposite someone as a manager now and they've come to tell you this enormous thing and you have no idea what to do next. 
Um, and so the Workplace Transitions e-toolkit is a tool for managers. The Cancer and Careers Managers Toolkit, I know, a little confusing because those words were reused a lot, <laughs> is really for a patient to take with them. And it's written to the manager after the first couple pages, but it's kind of the, uh, designed for that patient to hand over to their employer. So that's what we do on the manager front because we think there's a lot of opportunity there um, to improve outcomes, but obviously each company has its own set of policies and universe that it operates in and, and culture and all of that stuff. So in order to try to address that without going into every single company in the United States, <laughs> we created these two pieces to kind of help further the conversation along. When it comes to coworkers, we have a whole section on our website called Sharing the News that's for mm. a patient or a survivor to look through. And we're actually in the process of updating it a little bit, but the core information is there and important and, and useful. Um, and so that talks through some things to think about, how you might want to present the information. You know, one of the things I think that people do, um, because it's human nature, so much of this is really just about human nature um, is you want to go into work and have a plan and have like a timeline and say we're going to stick to it. Cancer doesn't work that way. So when people go in and, and present it in that way, it locks them into then having to go back and say actually it's different now, actually it's different again, actually what I thought was going to happen isn't going to happen. Instead of going in if someone is going to disclose and saying I want to tell you this, and, and here's what I know to be true right now, but most importantly, as I understand it, it's going to be fluid. So my goal in telling you is to open a line of communication so that we can address changes as, as necessary, um, rather than it's going to go just like this and then have to go back and say, actually, it's not going to go just like this. It takes, it's a little bit more of a front end amount of uncertainty, but it takes away that feeling of stress that you were wrong about the timeline you set forth, because how can you be wrong about, you don't know, no one knows. It's just, it's just a best likelihood, a best guess at times. Um, so we try to encourage people to not be too definitive when they're explaining their circumstances at work, but to create a path to communicating. If there's someone who's gonna disclose enough information that that would make sense for them. And the disclosure piece is incredibly personal. It has to do with the individual, what they're comfortable with, who they are normally. Are they sharers? Are they mm -hmm. private? What is sharing or not sharing going to do to how they feel inside as a human because of what comes naturally to them? But it's also what kind of environment do they work in? Who are the people who are going to be the recipients of the information? Are they likely to be supportive? Is it a familial environment or is it a one that they don't have deep or strong relationships with? None of that means that they're going to disclose or not disclose, but it's going to help them be strategic about how they go about disclosure or not. And that's really personal. Um, and it's really important that if a patient has the opportunity to think it through beforehand, that they do so they can have the aim for the best outcome for themselves. And I say it that way because lots of people get on the phone with their doctor in the middle of an open floor plan cubicle situation and find out <laughs> they've been diagnosed with cancer. And then they don't have an opportunity to make a decision. They don't get to think about disclosure in this way. It doesn't mean they don't get to think about it from that point forward. It just means that it, 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 it happened in a different capacity. And while we're on disclosure, I feel like I have to get on my soapbox for a second. 
<laughs> no, we love it. <laughs> oh, good. Because I really, I was like, I maybe I'm already on my soapbox, but this is really going to take it to the, to the real. And no, no, this is all great information. So please don't hold yeah. that <laughs> to the next <laughs> level. Well, that's we, the biggest question too. Um, I always thought, so what if a person discloses to their um, supervisor? And what if it's because they need a reasonable accommodation? So um, they're working in retail and instead of standing all day, they ask for a stool where they can um, be the cashier. To me, that sounds reasonable, but then the other coworkers aren't allowed to sit in the stool, but that person is. So, so inevitably, does that mean, you know, and the other um, staff is going to ask the supervisor. So does the supervisor then tell them that you need some kind of accommodation because something's going on with you? So it's a great question. One, it's incumbent on the supervisor to be able to field that question appropriately. And so often we hear from patients that they've leapt to those concerns. Those are not the patient's concerns. The patient's concerns are what they need to be able to do their job that they have arranged with their supervisor. If the patient is hoping for as much confidentiality as possible, they should say that out loud to their supervisor and to anyone else who they decide to share with, not because I'm saying that a supervisor could then just go tell anyone they wanted to if they didn't say it out loud, but because the more people know what your wishes are, not because you assume that they understand them, but because you have said what they are, the more likely your wishes are going to be what takes place. It's not a perfect solution, because as I said, it's all humans. This is all about humans. So right. we're pretty imperfect. Um, <laughs> but, but the more that that preference is articulated, the more likely people are going to respect what those goals are. Otherwise, people will act the way they naturally do. My example for that is actually around the space uh, related to how people use the internet. That's my soapbox. And social media and how they talk about their experiences there. Disclosure used to be, am I telling my friends and family and am I telling at work? Now it's, am I telling my friends and family, am I telling at work? And am I announcing it on the loudest platforms that there are so that people who I haven't seen in 25 years who I'm Facebook friends with right. know this too. And what happens there is, even if the patient has made a mindful decision about what they want to do online, if they don't tell the people in their life who they are sharing their news with about their preferences related to the internet, those people are going to act the way they naturally would act. So you could have someone who's not on Facebook at all, but their sibling is hugely active and in moments of support is posting, going to the doctor again, fingers crossed for good news, blah, 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 tag sister. And suddenly it's the sibling who's sharing this information because maybe they didn't have a conversation about what the patient's preferences were. And now you've got this cat even further out of the bag and the patient might've been hoping to keep it more private. So it's really important for the, for the patient themselves to know what's important to them about disclosure and then communicate that to anyone they do disclose to. And even people who are gonna share online, I would challenge them to make sure they're thinking about both the short-term benefits of sharing online and the long-term complexity that may come along with that. Because frankly, employers are utilizing all of the social media spaces to learn about their existing employees 
and mm -hmm. their prospective employees. So it doesn't mean that I'm saying that by any stretch being diagnosed with cancer should be a negative or is a negative. I'm just saying you want to be savvy and strategic. And so you want to make good choices about disclosure because the internet lives forever, it turns out. It's such an emotional time because I think speaking to, you know, young adults who are using social media, you know, especially more, especially since, you know, being diagnosed, I think in their minds, they're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm diagnosed with this, with this thing and I want to kind of find people I can relate to. So in their mind, it's doing a great thing because they're finding those groups of people that they can then connect to and learn from and experience the same things with. But then it's that other side, which is what you spoke about. I mean, once doing that, it's the understanding that, that now this is online forever, pretty much, you know, and and like you said, I mean, employers are looking at those resources or at those platforms to kind of see who's coming into the fold. And and I, I mean, I guess it makes sense because it's so emotional. So you just kind of want to find out who you can connect with. But then it's also remembering that within the emotion, I mean, there's going to be an impact either way, you know? Absolutely. And I, and I think what's important here isn't... Um, don't do it ever. It's make a good decision about why you're doing it and be comfortable with what we do know about the internet. You know, 15 years ago, no one had any idea they were going to tweet ever. That wasn't something <laughs> anyone, you know, there wasn't a crystal ball that was like, someday you're going to be describing your life in 140 characters. We would have laughed. <laughs> with hashtags. Why hashtags? Totally. So, so it's less about trying to see what the future is and more about not pretending that the present that we live in isn't the present that we live in. And so you're making choices when you do that. I also think the, the point you're making about community is super important and it's important across a range of demographics, age, location, people in more rural communities who there isn't another person who was diagnosed with anything similar to them anywhere they could access. There are people who are not going to go to an in-person support group, but will do something virtually. There's, there's such a range, and now we live in a time where there are so many opportunities for support, but you can still make good decisions about where that support comes from. You could discover that someone is a young adult survivor because they've decided to be really public, and you aren't, and you could private message them. You could look to see if they're in a closed group. You could send an individual communication. You could participate in groups that you've looked into their privacy policies about, and you're sure that if you participate in that group, it's going to be done well, or through organizations that have a focus on ma maintaining privacy. There are just so many... There are so many ways to be a smart consumer, even about this, that it's never for me about don't get the support you need in the way that you need it, but it can, you can think about how to meet all of those needs. If you're someone who's going to be public, that doesn't ever want to work anywhere, that didn't know this part of their story, then that's a decision too. And then you don't have to think about the rest of these things. But there are a lot of people who fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum about how public they would like their personal information to be. And I want them to know that they have options and that there are things to think about. And it doesn't mean you lose out on the support opportunities. Sure, and we do provide you know, support opportunities online just for that reason. People um, can connect if they're in rural places, um, can't make a support group, or they really want to keep themselves um, anonymous and keep the confidentiality. So we have online chats and, and we have our online community and you can come up with any name you want 
to be on that community. Um, you don't have to share your first and last name to see if somebody's going to look it up. You can have the privacy, but at the same time, at least get that information and get that connection um, that you really would need uh, to help you in your cancer that, journey. And that's so important. And I think the the great organizations like you are creating pathways for that so that people can access it the way that it works for them and without fear. And that's right. really, really important. Um, and I think that what we encourage, and I have to tell you, the number of times I felt like the downer in the event that I was speaking at because there's all of this, share your story everywhere, share your story everywhere. And then I roll up and I'm like, so share your story everywhere. But I would also encourage you to think about these things too. <laughs> and it's only to make sure that you don't wind up down the road, which has happened to me at events, standing up to say, is there anything I can do about the fact that this is out there? Because there are very limited things that you can do once something's public. Um, it's not that there's nothing, but they're fairly limited and it depends on where they are and who ha you know, and how you did it and all of that stuff. So I'd rather have people be making those decisions before so that they were doing it with that mindfulness so that sure. later they don't feel caught out. It's not a perfect solution, but I think that the more awareness there is around what to think about and how disclosure is so much louder now than it once was. You know, it reaches such a much more far ranging uh, group of people potentially um, than it did before. That's true. I think the emotional side of a cancer diagnosis is not always the first line of concern in treatment. And so social support offers that that need, you know, offers that, that I guess, treatment in a sense that the person can now say, you know, my, my meds and my charts and all that, you know, that's one conversation, but I can look here to help reduce anxiety and stress that comes along with the, with the cancer diagnosis. Absolutely. And what happens if you're unable to work? Um, what do you do next if, if you can't work because of your diagnosis and type of treatment that you need? So that's an incredibly hard one. And I will say it, it, it bridges a place where we do have information and resources and then where we don't because we're so focused on the being at work or heading back to work piece. But what I will say about it is one, I'm going to go back to that assumption thing. There are a lot of assumptions that the first line is you can't work versus we've tried a lot of things before we've decided that you can't work. I'm not saying there aren't some examples of someone who just can't work, that's not what I'm saying, but that what I experience on the day-to-day -day basis in the community is people often start with, you can't work. It could be the doctor, it could be another member of the healthcare team, it could be the employer, it could be the patient themselves who don't know that there are any other ways to think about work. So there's just that first line of, just this happened, so now you cannot. So my first encouragement is to make sure that that's been picked apart. Is that in fact true? Can you not work? And when I say not work, it might be, can you not work at all? Or can you not work at your current job the way it is right now or any job? So I think that it is important to break that down. And there is gonna be a population of people who potentially can't work, but to make sure that's not where it starts. Because um, right. we've heard incredible stories about people with all kinds of cancer and all kinds of jobs finding a way to work. And so if that's important to the patient, that's a piece. I think if, if a person really can't work, that's when organizations like yours and like their 
social workers and nurses in their hospital where they're being treated become really important. And the ones that have access to financial advisors in, in the place that they're getting care or through an organization become very important in terms of figuring out how they're going to proceed and what that's going to look like. It's also obvious a place where a family becomes pretty essential. We come back into the story again when and if that person is ready to go back to work. So how do you think about the return to work? Are you going back to an existing job after time off? Because you couldn't work through treatment or some portion of treatment, not that you can never work again. Um, are you going to have to look for a new job? And what does it look like to be a candidate who has a cancer history, which is very prevalent in the patient's mind, but not necessarily prevalent at all in the prospective employer's mind? Uh, but I have a gap on my resume, so how am I going to talk about that? All of those things, when we get back to that place, Cancer and Careers comes right back into the story. So we try very hard to have some good referrals in place for people who truly aren't going to be able to work during some portion of their treatment experience. Um, but where we get right back in the saddle with them is when they're ready to figure out what's next, either in terms of going back to their current job or finding a new one. Now, if they're going back to their current job, um, does the employer have to keep their specific position open? Do they have to go back to the same position or? That's a great question and it comes down to a series of things. Uh, if the person was out, and I'm gonna importantly point out that I am not a, an attorney. Um, I know a lot about a couple of laws in an informational way. Uh, and so I wanna say that because I think it's important and because we feel really strongly that patients get the best information and guidance that they can. So we typically tee up the things to understand about a couple of the most relevant laws and then refer them to a place where they're gonna be able to get more specific direct information about their circumstance. So I just feel like that's a, an important disclaimer for everyone. Um, Such as our friends at Triage Cancer. I was, that was going to be the next thing out of my mouth. Um, We're all a family, see? We 100% are. Yeah, an organization like that, or even, you know, depending upon what someone's looking for, if there is a legal service organization in that community referring to that organization and that kind of stuff. But yes, we are one big, enormous family. Um, so that said, if someone has taken time off work under the Family and Medical Leave Act, that law describes what the circumstances for return to work look like. So the patient would want to have understood that and read through that. And it really clearly articulates what being returned to your job means. So that's a very important piece of the puzzle for someone to understand if they've activated the FMLA and are then going back to work. Um, the ADA also has um, clarification if someone has taken time off as a reasonable accommodation there is also clearly stated information in the ADA uh, about what that means to be returned to their job and it's not exactly the same as the FMLA because as anyone who's ever heard triage cancer speak you'll know that not each law is not defined in the same way for each thing so it's very important for a patient to understand what law they were using and then what that return to work pathway looks like through that law in order to understand what they can expect when they go back to work. But I will tell you, there are also other stories. There are stories of employers who go above and beyond and who 
keep a job open or keep the opportunity to come back to work available to a person even if that exact job isn't there or have a policy in place in their in their company policy related to someone being out um, it can't override what they're required to do by the law but they may go beyond that and so it is super important for a patient to have looked at their employee handbook if they have one or their intranet or if they have taken time off, they've probably had to deal with HR or their supervisor, even if they haven't disclosed every detail, because you can't just not go to work. So there's been some conversation at that point um, to understand what the path back to work looks like in their particular company. Because there are really phenomenal employers out there. It's not all bad stories. There are certainly bad stories too. But, and it's important to make sure you understand what you have access to that it is, that's through your company, not just because the law says so. Absolutely a young woman who I met now years ago who was phenomenal and she was um, she'd been diagnosed and she actually happened to be a social worker she was not in the oncology space that just happened to be her job and work was so important to her I cannot understate the level to which work was a contributing factor to her overall well-being during her cancer diagnosis and treatment and recovery um, she was in her late 20s and she had worked really hard to get her social work degree and be employed and it gave her it gave her purpose and it made her feel less isolated and so when she was describing it to me and she had been out of the office for a couple of weeks because she had to be those were the worst weeks of her whole cancer experience because she was just mm -hmm. at home with her thoughts isolated from everything not contributing to anything and that was really difficult for her. So she was amped. She was going back to work as soon as she was able to. And so she did, and she was experiencing nausea as a side effect, and it certainly was a side effect, but it wasn't debilitating. At work, however, it was. She could not get through her day. She was so nauseous. And so it kind of screamed, you can't work but she really needed to work. So she was really focused on unearthing an answer and figuring out a solution to it. Um, and it took quite a while. And I'm telling this story because I think it illustrates um, why there's so much nuance and detail in thinking about all of this. So she then realized that she was not as nauseous after work at home. It wasn't as debilitating. And it wasn't debilitating during the same hours on the weekend when she wasn't at work. So something about work was exacerbating her side effect. And it turned out that her office where she saw clients was basically next to the cafeteria. Mm. And so the oh. smells from the cafeteria took uncomfortable nausea to a level that was impossible for her to survive the day. Mm. So in her case, which is an example of a reasonable accommodation, she moved offices with someone else to get away from the cafeteria. It did not mean that her nausea went away entirely, but the level of her nausea went away enough for her to be able to do her job. And so I think that it's it's small stories like that where you hear how someone had to think through all of those pieces to kind of isolate the problem. But for her, it was the difference between describing misery when she had to be at home for a while versus hope when she could be doing her job. And so thinking about 
a patient's job and what it includes and what the specific side effects that are causing trouble are or what the specific issue looks like, empowering them to ask questions like, does my appointment have to be at two on Tuesday? Because that's really difficult for my work. Maybe it does. Maybe there's a health outcome reason. But ask the question. Don't just take the appointment if that's important to your patient. But often you have to tell someone it's okay to do that because you don't know what you don't know. Again, that's sort of the theme, I guess, today. So I think that's a really inspiring example to me of how you need, you have to listen to yourself. You have to think about what's important to you and see if you can make that work. And, and if it's not working, what can you do to figure it out? And who can you bring in? Who's on your team? Healthcare team, supervisor, coworker, family, like whoever it is that you've shared this information in with that you can get to help you start thinking through what might work better. Um, using resources, triage, cancer and careers, the job accommodation network, which has lots of examples of reasonable accommodations and lots of different kinds of jobs and work environments. You know, there is a lot to consider. And I think people get paralyzed rightfully so because there is so much happening. But if work matters for whatever reason that that defines for you, I want you to be able to think, think about how you could do it. And that's that's really important. There are resources. There is support. Well, thank you so much for sharing your work with us and informing us about ways to navigate the workplace with the cancer diagnosis and touching upon issues that aren't necessarily top of mind. We look forward to working with you in the future and serving both of our communities with this important and much needed information. So thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I, and I, as I said, our partnership has been so profoundly great. And I only imagine that it, it's deep now. So we will, we will continue to collaborate to make sure that, that all of our patients get the information that they need. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.